0: Choir, Gene, Carol and Richard, as you have noticed, are out of town. They are enjoying some family time down in Mississippi. at uh, Their son was playing a country music show yesterday with, you know, some little country music acts like Kenny Chesney, Thomas Rhett, nobody really important. You've probably never heard of them, but... Uh, it's exciting to see uh, what's going on with their family, and, and thank you so much to Paula Ferrar, and thank you, Paula and Jean, for uh, filling in today. Well, this morning, we're going to continue to walk through uh, the Gospel of John and our Jesus Messiah series, and I had a friend who preached uh, recently in, in big church at his church, and uh, he said that right before he preached, a deacon came and laid a hand on his shoulder and said, it's hot, and we're hungry. So uh, I'll, it, it is warm in here, so this will be brief, I, I hope, and, and we'll, uh, we'll get out of here. Uh, but we just finished, uh, 2 Kings in our Old Testament readings during our, our read through the Bible, and, and if I, I, hear that my wife started a Facebook group, uh, she won't let me be a part of it, but it's an accountability group as we read through the Bible together this year, and if you want to be in it, let her know, she'd love to have you in it, but, uh, she told me that I, I can't be in it because she feels like people won't be honest, they won't be themselves if, if the preacher's in the Facebook group, so she, she's banned me from it, um. But she, she told me there's been some really interesting discussions in there regarding 2 Kings. We just finished 2 uh, Kings on Friday, I believe, in our, our readings. And uh, it's a brutal book. It really is. Uh, it's, it's brutal to read because of the de- depravity and the violence and just the the s- downward spiral of sin that God's people find themselves in. It's really easy to get depressed and discouraged as you read 2 Kings. So. This month, I've been especially grateful for these little, little nuggets of hope and light and love and grace and truth in John. It's so nice to finish with a few verses from John each day after reading uh, these horrible stories from 2 Kings. And it's good to remind us uh, that John says that the Word, the, the preexistent eternal Word that was God and that was with God from the beginning... is full of grace and truth, and He has become flesh, and He has dwelt among us, and we all have received from His fullness grace upon grace." So last week we saw how Jesus transcended the culture of racism, really, that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans over centuries of baggage, and how he, he reached across that cultural divide in order to evangelize not only the woman at the well, but the entire town as he stayed there for two days with his disciples and instructed them about grace and truth of the gospel, the gospel that is, says that God so loved the world, the whole world, all peoples and all nations and tribes and tongues, all ethnicities and all socioeconomic backgrounds and all kinds of baggage, people who are broken and wounded, that God loved all of them so much that He would send His only Son to become flesh and to live among us and to teach us the words of life and then to die an atoning death that only the perfect spotless Lamb could die in order to pay the debt that we owed on our Behalf so that we could be right with God now and forever. So we were reminded of the importance last week of <coughs> excuse me, cross-cultural evangelism in really seeing and acknowledging the image of God in all peoples, that all people bear the image of God to the world. And today our text comes from the end of chapter six, a really important passage in the book of John. To set this up, Jesus has just fed the the crowd, the 5,000 men and all the women and children who were following him as he was teaching, using a little boy's lunch with five loaves and two fish. This miraculous, wonderful sign that he had performed. And his popularity at this point had never been higher. His approval ratings were were through the roof at this point. So look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, feeding the 5,000, They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So instead of using his newly acquired stardom to rightfully take his place on the throne of Israel, he instead withdraws for some alone time with his heavenly father on the mountaintop. This past weekend, my, my wife, uh, she went to go visit one of her best friends in St. Louis, and she took the baby and left me alone with, with Jude and May for, for three days. So I was just hoping to keep them fed and, and somewhat clean and keep the house in, intact. And uh, it really ended up being a lot of fun. My, my, my big kids, Jude and May, they really needed that, that focused daddy time, you know? It was really special. We went and walked around downtown Franklin for a long time, and we ate ice cream, and we uh, went and got donuts, uh, we, we just had a, a great time watching movies and, and making popcorn and all kinds of, we didn't all eat junk food the whole time, but uh, <laughs> they got some veggies in there somewhere, I'm sure. But, but we all need that, that, that focused time with our dads, and it's true for Jesus, too, that he needed this focused, intense time alone on the mountaintop with his heavenly Father, it's kind of the point of what we're going to get to in the later part of chapter 6 as well. This time with our Father that is a relationship of love. So as we continue with, with this uh, on chapter 6, we see that after he retreats to the mountaintop that he rejoins his disciples by walking out on the water to them in the midst of a storm and they miraculously end up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So what do the crowds do on the other side? They get in boats and they follow him. They want to continue to see these signs and wonders. They say, wow, this guy fed everybody with five loaves and two fish. This guy walks on water. We want to see what he's going to do next. So they all follow him to the other side of Galilee, to Capernaum. And Jesus is not your typical preacher, right? Usually when we find something that, that works, that people are responding to, we stick with it. We continue to, to use that. Not, not Jesus. He, he follows up. His popularity with a seemingly bizarre and on the surface an incredibly unattractive, unappealing teaching. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Okay, that sounds good. That's I can handle that. You're the bread of life. That sounds good. But skip to verse 57 that sounds like cannibalism, I'm not cool with that. You've, you've, you've obviously crossed some kind of line. You're talking about feeding on flesh. You know, there's a few topics that you should probably avoid when you're preaching, and cannibalism's got to be up near the top of the list of things to avoid. Why in the world would he say this? <laughs> what is Jesus talking about? You know, Morgan told me that in, in the Facebook group that, that some of the, the conversation revolved around chapter 6 in 2 Kings, where this horrible story of... of cannibalism occurs when the northern kingdom of Israel is besieged by Syria this this one lady gives her son so that the neighbors can eat and then she's complaining to the king because the neighbors won't reciprocate by giving their children to eat it's a horrible really low, low point in the Bible in the the narrative of God's people it's a horrible topic so why would Jesus talk about eating his flesh maybe it's because it's true Maybe it's because it's what the people needed to hear. You know, David Platt, many of you know who that is. He, he wrote the, the best-selling book Radical and Radical together. And he, uh, he, he became the youngest pastor of a megachurch in the nation. He was 28 when he took over at the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham. 5,000 people every week attending there. And I was a youth minister in Birmingham at the time. We were so excited that he was in town and, and we attended some of the events that they held at Brook Hills. But, but David came in with a, a pretty serious take on the gospel. He really held it in high regard, so much so that he began to, to really understand the culture of Birmingham, Alabama in the fall revolves around what? Football, of course. And, and all he heard in the halls of, of Brook Hills was Alabama, Auburn, Alabama, Auburn. And it's, it really is a way of life down there. And, and you know, I love sports, and we just celebrated the Preds, and I'm, I'm excited about uh, sports and everything, but, but David really understood that this is, this is a deeper issue, that this is, this is borderline, if not outright, idolatry. So he said that from the pulpit in his first couple months. He said, this is idolatry. You guys love football more than you love Jesus. Guess what that did for his church? <laughs> about 1,500 people literally left the church. You can't say that in Birmingham, Alabama. It's religion. It is. So what if it's idolatry? It's their religion. He, he gave them a, a, a harsh but true word because it's what the people needed to hear. We need to be careful about how we view sports in our culture, don't we? We need to be careful not to make something that's a good thing like sports and coming together, recreation. We need to make sure that we don't make a good thing an ultimate thing on which our hopes and dreams and and, and passions rely. So was he a successful pastor? I'd say yes, absolutely, because he boldly spoke the truth. When it came to the gospel, he refused to compromise that Jesus alone should be in first place. He boldly spoke grace and truth to a community that needed to hear both of those things. You know, Jesus isn't concerned here with, you know, tickling the ears of his audience. He's, he's concerned with giving them the truth. He's concerned with giving them words of life, words that will impart true meaning and significance into their hearts and their souls on a deep, meaningful level so that they can flourish, so they can have life to the fullest. But of course, the crowds don't want to hear these things. Look at verse 60 when many of his disciples, not the twelve, but the crowd of disciples that are following him, they said, oh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The crowds of people that claim to be his disciples, his, his followers, are grumbling here. They're saying, oh, this is This is gross, Jesus. You lost me at the whole cannibalism thing. We're out of here. This is a hard teaching. And they're offended. They're greatly offended by this idea. These are good, reputable, upstanding Jewish people that are in society and and have reputations to protect. They don't follow these cannibalistic type religions. You know, back in verse 41 in chapter 6, the people say they're offended. They're, They're scandalized. They grumble because Jesus said that he was the bread that came down from heaven. They said, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, that's not really good, nice Judaism. They're they're scandalized by this. So Jesus says, what if you were to see me actually rising back to where I came from? That would really stir up a, a firestorm of controversy among your religious types, your religious leaders. So the crowds don't get it, of course. They're missing what Jesus is really saying. They're just like Nicodemus back in chapter three, who when Jesus said, you have to be born again, he said, gross, I'm not going back in my mother's womb. Jesus said, you don't, you don't get it. It's not what I'm talking about. Or the woman at the well last week, remember Jesus said, I will give you living water. She said, cool, then I won't have to come here and draw water anymore. Where's this water that you're gonna give me, this miracle water that will keep producing water so I don't have to go to the well anymore and see people who might shun me for my my past. They don't understand that Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality. You know, this is something that's underneath the surface. They're only looking on the surface level. They're only looking at the physical things that can be observed through our five senses. Jesus is talking about something much deeper than that. You know, scientists tell us that uh, icebergs, uh, the, the, the typical iceberg. Uh, What you see of the iceberg is only 12.5% of the mass of the iceberg. That 87.5% is submerged under the surface. We need to look under the surface of things, is what Jesus is saying, to the spiritual reality. It's every bit as real. That 87% is there. And it's just as real as the other 12%. But you can't always see it. You can't always perceive it, at least not yet. Yet not in this life keep reading he explains this in verse 63 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that i've spoken to you are spirit and life the flesh is no help at all the bible never refers to flesh in a positive way paul says in in romans 7 that there's nothing good in the flesh he says in philippians 3 that we can't trust the flesh that that there's no confidence in the flesh So when Jesus says, you must eat my flesh, he's got to be talking about something other than physical flesh. He's talking about something deeply spiritual and, and real that happens once we place our faith in him. He makes it plain to his followers here that he's talking about things that are beneath the surface, things that bring true life and flourishing and thriving. He says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But this only happens, we only receive these words when we believe in our hearts on a spiritual level, which is why he says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Some of you who do not have faith. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him. By the Father. Only the Father grants us the desire, the ability to come to Christ in faith and to generate that kind of belief. Jesus had, had been explaining all these spiritual realities to his followers the whole time. Only a few verses earlier, he had just told them how the Father gives them the ability to live a spiritual existence, to live a spiritual life, to believe in their hearts and souls that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And, and this message is extremely unpopular. This is not what most preachers do. The invitation to live spiritually is met with resistance even today, isn't it? The call to the spiritual life doesn't really fill the pews, does it? Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus knew that these crowds that were following him didn't really believe in their hearts that he was the Christ. They were impressed by his tricks. They, they said, oh, he, he made a whole, you know, feast out of five loaves and two fish. This guy's awesome. He walked on water. That was sweet. We want to see that again. They don't really believe in their hearts that he's the Savior, the Lord, the Master of the universe, the one who is preexistent with the Father. You know, to be attracted to the signs he was performing is a good thing, that's, that's one thing, but to understand and embrace the inner significance of the one who was doing the signs, that's the more important thing, isn't it? To know that the reason he could do those signs is because he was, in fact, God in the flesh, dwelling among them. They wanted to make him their political king, though. They wanted to make him the king of Israel to overthrow the Romans. They didn't want to give their lives away by by placing all of their hopes and dreams and faith and trust into Jesus Christ as the Savior. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, what they wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. Sad, isn't it? it? Still happens today, too. It's also sad. Now Jesus is back after this with his original 12 disciples and he says in verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This was another test for them. Were they just as frustrated as the crowds were that Jesus was, was offering them life through, through belief in him, through a relationship with God through him? Were they just as skeptical about his ability to, to really overthrow the, the Romans and, and do what they wanted him to do? Did they just desire to live a life of comfort and ease more than following him as homeless people who were wandering around Israel? Were they offended? Were they scandalized by these strange, unfashionable new teachings that he was offering? So, Peter, as he's done so many times before, speaks without really thinking. <laughs> I have that problem sometimes. He says the first thing on his mind, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This time, the, the first thing on Peter's mind was right. It was the right thing. Peter and the disciples had, had learned and seen and believed for themselves that Jesus was indeed the Word made flesh. That he was God incarnate. That he was the Lord not only of them as their master and rabbi, but the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. They had grasped in their hearts the reality that Jesus is now sharing with the world. That that by placing one's faith in him, by, by putting one's trust in his ability to save them, that they had access to God the Father, the holy God of the universe both in this life and in the next. And this is a spiritual reality, isn't it? This is part of that 87% below the surface that we can't really see. This is not a physical reality, which the, the point of the sermon really today is that we have to learn to live in the 87%. We have to learn to live in the unseen spiritual realities that Jesus came to show us. He told the woman at the well last week, the hour is coming, chapter 4, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. It's a spiritual reality that God is calling us to. At the men's retreat we had a a few weeks ago, Dennis Roman did a phenomenal job of teaching. And, and he, his topic was the spirit-filled life. How to live the spiritual life. At the beginning of the retreat, he showed us that, that we are made up of bodies. Yes, we have bodies. And that's important. God made us as physical beings. We're not just brains on a stick walking around. We are embodied creatures, right? That's important. But we also have a soul. Dennis said that our soul is our, our mind, our, our will, our emotions, Right? That's our soul. He said we don't have a soul. We are souls, basically. It's the combination of our conscience, our our will. But we're also spirit. If you go to any bookstore, you'll see a huge section on spirituality. People know deep down in their bones that we are spiritual beings just as much as we are embodied beings. We are spirit. This is the part of us, Dennis said, that yearns for meaning for significance, for beauty, for truth. This is what goes beyond what we can see and touch and perceive through our physical world. Dennis said that that our spirit is the part of our, our nature that allows us to know and worship God. It's the part of us that communes with God. I had a professor in seminary who basically said, if you think of your soul as having two rooms, okay, there's an upper room and a lower room of the soul. The lower room of the soul is is where we have basic desires for for food, for for competition and sports, you know, for, for things like that. But there's an upper room of the soul where our spirit resides that allows us to commune with God on a spiritual level. We must become spiritual people by embracing the upper room of the soul. So what about you today? Do you like the crowds who were following Jesus because of The neat signs that he did? Do you you find the call to live the spirit-filled life too hard? Is it too hard a teaching? We know that it's it's not the the teaching about the spiritual life that's too hard, right? Any child can grasp the ideas that Jesus is really talking about here, believe in Jesus as Lord. It's the hard part is that once you understand that, that it's too hard to accept. G.K. Chesterton, the the brilliant British theologian and 19th century writer, once wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So true. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and then left untried. The spirit-filled life never let anyone down. It never fails us. But millions, millions and millions have walked away from the invitation to live a spiritual life because they think it's too hard to embrace the Savior as Master and Lord of their bodies, their souls, and their spirits. So the two key questions today in this passage that we take away is where, where else can we go to receive life? Where else? You know, St. Augustine said, our souls are restless until they rest in God. God. The only way we do that is through Jesus Christ. Where else can we receive life-giving words that lead to flourishing in real life? We're not, not going to find them anywhere, I promise, other than in Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh. Our souls will be restless until they rest in Him. Second question is, are you ready to embrace the spiritual life today? Are you ready to to pray? Are you ready to commune in a relationship, a spiritual reality with God Almighty through Jesus Christ? Will you look beyond the the 12% of what we can see and perceive in this world to what God is really doing below the surface? Will you live in that spiritual reality today? This is only done by prayer, by meditating on God's Word By worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. By spiritually offering all of ourselves as a daily sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord as a spiritual act of worship. The invitation today is to live the the spirit-filled life, to exist in that 87%. Maybe you're a believer here today, but but your prayer life is non-existent. You know, I've, I've talked with many people, and, and they're going through a hard time. I said, well, have you, have you prayed about it? Have you really prayed? Have you asked the Lord about it? And a lot of times they say no. What's your prayer life like today? Maybe, maybe you don't really have a great prayer life. I would encourage you to come on Tuesday mornings and, and pray at 615. If you're a, a guy, come pray with Dewey Dunn and, and some of the others here and learn to pray from, from them. If if you're a a, a lady, the the ladies' prayer group meets on Wednesday afternoons, every other Wednesday, 4 o'clock, is it 4 p.m.? What time is it? 4.45, Jana, thank you. Every other Wednesday, come pray with with Jana and some of these ladies and learn to pray from them. It's incredible ministry they do. Maybe you don't have a hunger for the words of life that Jesus Christ brings us. Maybe you, you really don't love the Bible. Ask God to help cultivate that love of Scripture in you. Come and feast at the the table that Jesus sets before you. He says, come and eat and be satisfied. You will find life in him. And Christianity is not about being good. It's not about following the rules, right? Christianity is about a relationship, a spiritual relationship that is now, that will one day be a physical relationship and spiritual. One day, when Jesus returns, we will see him face to face and we will know him fully. In this life, though, we we know Him spiritually. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never begun the journey, the spiritual journey of of following Christ as Lord and Master of your soul, your mind, your spirit, your body. If that's you, I invite you to come now. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation. Whatever decision it is that you need to make today, maybe you're headed off to college like Olivia Clare and you want to renew your faith in Christ before you go. Maybe you're, you're ready for Guatemala, you're part of the 35 of us who are going, and you know that, that you need to be spiritually prepared. Maybe you've, you haven't prayed in weeks. Maybe your prayer life is, is so dismal that you want to renew your commitment to developing a spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ today. Whatever it is that you need to do, I invite you now as we stand and sing to make that decision. Let's stand.